Good morning again. Thank you very much. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13, it's page 9 in the Black Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are some close to you. If you look to the left or the right or right in front of you under the chairs there, uh, there should be a Black Bible you can grab. And I forgot to mention at the beginning, we have visitor cards under the chairs as well near the Bibles. If you're new, we'd love it if you'd fill out one of those cards and drop it in the box back there. There's a bunch of Grace Bible Church mugs, uh, that's a gift to you if you give us, uh, drop the card in the box, you can take one of those mugs, there's some candy and some more information about the church in there. Um, we are continuing our series called Father Abraham, we're looking at the stories in Genesis about Abraham in chapters 12 through 22, and we're doing this really purposefully preparing ourselves for Romans, we're going to be studying Romans in the fall, and uh, Paul leans heavily on the argumentation of the book of Genesis, looking at Abraham as the father of faith. Uh, And that's where he helps to kind of build continuity, helping us to see that this new covenant we have in Christ uh, has a connection point all the way across the scripture back uh, to the beginnings here in Genesis and Father Abraham. Abraham was a man uh, much like us who struggled, who wandered, who did good things, who did bad things, but he had faith in God. He trusted God, and that's what makes us uh, part of his family, connected to him in the same way. This week we are calling the sermon Choosing Wealth. Choosing Wealth. This is not a uh, sermon that was specifically written for Father's Day, but I think there are a lot of good Father's Day applications here, a lot of good applications for leadership in general. What does it look like to use your resources to be a servant leader? I think there's going to be a lot of that in this text. Um, We're going to be in chapter 13. We're looking at basically uh, the choices of Abraham and Lot. Uh, The way the text is written, we're supposed to recognize that Lot made bad choices. Uh, And so in this story, Abraham looks good. I was with you a couple of weeks ago looking at the second half of chapter 12 where Abraham made some bad choices. So again, Abraham's like us. He makes good choices. He makes bad choices. In this story, there's a real contrast between Abraham and Lot. So look at that as I read from the text, chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with them into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together." And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen or brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Abram's giving him the choice here. Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if 
one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would help us with this story. Um, Again, as we look at these stories, there's a lot of distance. There's a lot of time. There's uh, a different culture. We pray that you would help us to see the the big points, that you would help us to see the direction that the story is going, that we would see you at work in this story. We thank you that you're a God that calls people, that saves people, that loves people, and we hope in you as well. We pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I lost something that was very important to me, and I spent the next three weeks searching my house frantically, searching my office Uh, searching my car, trying to find this thing. Um, Those of you that know me well know that I'm a little bit disorganized. Anybody know me well enough to know that? Have you ever seen my desk? Some of you have seen my desk. Um, So my desk is kind of like a bunch of piles, piles upon piles. And so I thought maybe my keys, which I lost, had fallen into one of the piles or under one of the piles it was piled on one of the piles and so I was searching through the piles on my desk trying to find my keys and I was in my car looking underneath the seat you know how things fall on the side of your seat and normally if it's a Cheeto you just leave it there but if it's something valuable you might go digging for it right and so I was digging under the seat and uh, it was a good excuse and good time then to go ahead and take all the old paper cups and cans and stuff and throw those away as well but I kept searching frantically there my closet, there's piles in my closet, there's uh, piles in the garage, all these different places where things pile up trying to find my keys, because my keys are very valuable to me. They are important to me, right? They're what helps me get into the car and get into the house and get into the church and, and go and do the things that I need to do. I couldn't find them, I still haven't found them, so if you find them, please let me know. Um, but in that searching, I recognize something that I think is going on in this text as well, all people were always searching for the things that are valuable for us. That's picked up really strongly in some of the parables of Jesus when he talks about the kingdom, right? He talks about the kingdom being like a man who finds a treasure in a field. And that treasure is so great that he goes and he sells everything else that he has so he can go enjoy that treasure. He can buy the field and possess the treasure for himself. Or like a pearl merchant who finds the most valuable pearl and sells everything else to buy this pearl, God makes it clear through Jesus in the kingdom that the kingdom and really relationship with God himself is the most ultimate wealth. That's the one thing that we should choose above all others. But in this life, we know in the real world, there are all these secondary wealths that we need, right? These secondary resources, these secondary priorities, things that are important. We need food, we need drink, we need a place to live, we need a job. And so we search for these things and we focus on these things, but sometimes that choosing gets out of balance. And this story is one of those stories that shows a contrast between two kinds of choosing, two kinds of wealth. And so I want you to be thinking and be praying right now. You don't get to just zone out. I want you to be praying that the Lord would say to you, what, what is the true wealth in your life? What are the things you're really choosing? What are the things that you are frantically searching for, that you're digging for? that are most important to you? What are you prioritizing in your life? We're going to see a contrast here in the story with Abram and Lot. As I said, more than anything, this doesn't tell us that Abram is perfect, but it does tell us that Lot made bad choices. The first thing that we see as this 
story unfolds is that wealth causes problems. Wealth causes problems. We have this assumption that wealth solves all our problems, right? I don't know if you're like me. I, I grew up kind of poor and thinking that someday if I had money that everything would be okay. Any of you grew up that way? Grew up without money and you thought if I have money then everything will be all right. And then maybe you get a good job, you have money and you're like, oh wow, life is still hard, right? Like it, it didn't fix everything. And we see this picture pretty clearly in the story here with Abram. Look at verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7 here. We see that Abram's got great wealth, but he still has problems. Abram went up to Egypt, he and his wife, all that he had, lot with him into the Negev. And it says, now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. He had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of wealth. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel. He continues to journey to the place where he had made an altar. And so we see a return to the Lord. We see a return to true worship. He's calling out on the Lord again, and this is in contrast to what we saw at the end of chapter 12, where he had kind of wandered. He didn't seem to be talking to the Lord anymore. He was selling out his wife. He was making bad choices at the end of chapter 12, lying about who she was. And he got money in that time, but he fractured his trust and relationship with the Lord. And so the Lord brought him back to himself. And so here we see this return. But what's interesting is it's consistent with Abraham. He had money in both phases of his life, in every situation. He had plenty. He always had wealth, but sometimes he was trusting God and sometimes he wasn't. And so let's continue to read the story here and see what wealth brings into his life. It says in verse 6, the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And so the specific word that talks about the richness and the greatness of Abram, there's a couple of words here, uh, one that just simply means uh, wealthy, but another one that is often used for the word in the Old Testament, glory. We've talked about this word before. It's a Hebrew word, kabod, uh, and it can be translated fat, heavy, rich, or glory, right? So it has all of these meanings, and so in English, probably one word that would combine all those for us is great, right? Uh, it's kind of one of those overused words, but great can mean important, it can mean large, it can mean expensive. Um, another one would be weighty, uh, we might say significant, right? And so we have words like that that can have these multiple shades of meaning, right? And that's what this word means. Kabod means heavy, intense, great, weighty. Uh, think about someone who you think of as very impressive and the kinds of words that you might use for them. Well, that's what we're learning here about Abram. He's weighty. He's got a lot of stuff. But does that solve all of his problems? Does that make everything okay? Actually, it seems like it's creating problems, right? The more stuff you have, sometimes the more complex your life becomes. The more stuff you have, the more there is to govern. I don't know any of you have ever bought a house, um, but a house seems like a great idea until you buy one, right? And then you're like, wow, I own this. You know, when I lived in the apartment, they would fix it. Or at least they were supposed to fix it, right? But I didn't have to worry about it. And now I have to fix it because it's mine. So when you own more things, there's more things to take care of. There's more problems. There's more strife. I was thinking about a friend that I used to play football with. Here's a picture of a guy squatting. That's not the guy I played ball with, but he could squat about, I think it was like a zillion pounds. Maybe it was a million pounds, but he could squat a lot. And this guy was a Division I guy. You know, he went on to get a scholarship to a big school. And what he would do sometimes is he would just leave the weights on the rack after he squatted, 
and walk away, and we'd come back the next day, and the bar was bent. And he had a rich daddy, so his dad would just buy us a new bar for our weight room, and it was no big deal. But there was so much weight that it would bend the bar. And so there's this picture that we see of Abram having great weight and great wealth. But there's parts of his life that are beginning to bend. There's parts of his life that are beginning to bow under the stress. And I wonder if that's true in your life too. You have great things. Maybe you have a big family. You've always wanted a big family. You've always wanted a lot of kids. But that can bring some stress, right? Sometimes that brings some pressure into your life. Maybe you've always wanted, no, maybe you've always wanted a lot of money. You've wanted a great job. Now you've got a lot of money. You've got a great house. You've got a lot of things and you just realize the weight of maintenance that that brings into your life. Whatever it might be, there's tension that comes. There's a song that's just been going through my head again and again. I I can't get it out of my head uh, by a group called Sleeping at Last. And the song's Birthright. And this is the chorus. The chorus says, right or wrong, tension makes us stronger by making us weak when we needed to be. And it goes on, it says, privilege and pain, when compared, look the same. Comprehension begins when we pull back the lens. The, the idea is that both privilege and pain can cause tension in our lives. Right or wrong, whatever you want to make of it, you, we could have a philosophical debate later, I'll hand you C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain, and then you can report back to me. But whether or not you want to talk about the rightness or the wrongness of God you know, bringing difficulties into our life, we just know the reality is through those difficulties, we're taught to depend on Him. We're actually made stronger often through difficulties. It forces us to recognize our own weakness. It forces us to recognize our own problems and brokenness. And so we see here, Money and silver and gold and sheep and donkeys and and all these riches aren't solving problems in Abram's life. They're making Abram's problems more complex. They're bringing problems. And so I just want to encourage you, in your own life, you may be desperately searching for that wealth that's going to solve all your problems. You might be desperately scurrying around trying to get more education, scurrying around trying to get a better job, scurrying around trying to get a different spouse, scurrying around trying to get a better family, whatever it may be that you're trading or looking for or searching for, whatever wealth you're choosing in your life, know that oftentimes when we get those things that we've been looking for, it doesn't magically solve all of our problems. It doesn't fix everything. We're still broken people that are in need of God's help. Um, So the first thing is to recognize that the transient wealth of this world doesn't solve all of our problems. That's the first thing I just want us to see. I just kind of want you to wake up to that reality. Uh, The second thing that I want you to see is that you can learn how to trust God with both wealth and difficulty in your life. Those are both opportunities for you to learn to depend on God, for you to learn to trust Him. When God gives you more things, it can complicate your life, make your life more difficult. It doesn't save you. It doesn't fix everything. It gives you one more opportunity to pray and say, God, what do you want me to do with this wealth? What do, how do you want me to serve you with this? What do you want me to do with this tension, with this pain, with this privilege, whatever it may be? Secondarily, I want you dads to think about this, and really this, this would apply to any leader, any mentor, any mom, any teacher, but dads, it's Father's Day, so I'm going to pick on you a little bit. 
Dads, are you using the opportunities you have to shape your own kids? Are you shaping your kids to learn to trust God in adversity and with great wealth and great plenty? Are you teaching them? Are you discipling them? One of the areas where I see uh, people really struggling to know how to lead their families well uh, is dads thinking that the job is going to solve everything. And so dads put all their energy into the job, and they don't really put a lot of energy into the kids. I don't know if you've seen that happen. Uh, I don't know if maybe that's happening in your own life. But you choose wealth, thinking that wealth will solve your problems, and you forget to mentor your kids. You forget to love your wife, and you forget to have an influence on the people that God has put around you in your job. The number one priority we have is to influence those around us for God's glory, to to love them, to see them as opportunities to serve, to be servant leaders. Often we pursue those jobs thinking the job's going to fix things, and then maybe later in 10 years, I can get around to loving my wife and loving my kids. Don't, Don't miss the opportunity that you have now. Sometimes we spend all our energy trying to pursue the right job, trying to, trying to pursue wealth, and we let the opportunities with our kids slip through our fingers. Don't, don't waste the time that you have. Don't miss out on those opportunities to disciple. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to sign up for new classes, to get your kids in Sunday school. All this we're going to let you talk to uh, Neil Grogan and Stephen Watson afterwards. I, I'd love to talk to you more, guys, about what that means to make the most of the opportunity the time you have with your kids, with your family, even if you don't have kids, to influence those that you work with, those in your neighborhood. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Stephen Watson would love to talk to you more about that. Neil Grogan would talk, talk more with you about that. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to help you take next steps of saying, okay, my job's not going to solve everything. I need to use the time I have to influence others and not put all my eggs in the basket of wealth and a new job. The, the next thing that we see is Abram beginning to make healthy choices, that wealth is held loosely. Wealth should be held loosely. Look at verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9, we see Abram's reaction to the problems that wealth has created, okay? So wealth has created problems for him. His life is getting complicated. From there, he moved to the hill country. Nope, that's not it. Wrong chapter. Okay, chapter 13, verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. So we see him making a relational value and saying, we're brothers. We're, you know, literally he's his nephew, but the word here is kind of a brother word. We're brothers. We're family. So we're not going to tear each other apart. We're going to help each other out. We're going to be on the same team. So what does he decide to do? Verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley. And so we have Abram offering up the best to Lot. We have Abram offering up the best to Lot. As I said here, Abram is holding his wealth loosely. So God's given Abram this great uh, resource, all this money, it's a great job, you might say. He's got an empire, and Abram is holding it loosely. This, again, is in contrast to what we saw at the end of chapter 12, where Abram was willing to lie, cheat, and steal to save his own skin and to get more rich in Egypt, right? It looks like Abram's beginning to learn his lessons. And when you back up and look from kind of 50,000 feet as we read the story, 
we see the same language used for Abram as used for God. The same things that are said about God are said about Abram. So that is supposed to make us wake up and go, oh, I guess Abram's doing the right thing, right? We're not always sure, right? These stories are complicated. Sometimes we're not sure if Abram was supposed to go there or do that, and we're not sure. But in this story, we see parallelism, where we see Abram being generous to Lot the way that God is generous to Abram. We see Abram telling Lot to lift up his eyes and choose the same way that God is telling Abram, hey, lift up your eyes and see what I'm giving you. So we see parallelism here that helps us to see, okay, Abram's acting like God. The God of the universe that owns all things gave himself for you. If God was generous to us, how can we not be generous to others? And so as Christians, the gospel tells us, okay, God gave me everything I own, therefore I'll be generous and share with others. I'll hold my wealth loosely. I'll see the things that I have as an opportunity to bless others. And that's what we see modeled in the life of Abram. I have a picture here of an open hand. We see Abram saying, go ahead. Here you go. You can have it. It's yours. God gave me everything I have anyway. I'll share with you. There's no reason for us to have a war between our two tribes here. I'll be generous to you. Abram treating Lot in a fatherly way. I remember a uh, sermon years ago that a friend gave. Actually, it was at Grace Bible Church in College Station. I remember him talking about his dad and how his dad, when he would grill steaks on the grill, would always give the kids the best pieces of steak. I remember him saying, that's just what a dad does. That's just what a dad does. He serves those that he loves. He doesn't take and watch out for himself. He says, I'm the one with most resources, so I'm going to serve others. I'm going to spill myself out to serve those around me in love. That's what we see Abram doing here. My question is, is that what you're doing in your life? Again, you know, I want to press hard on dads. Dads, is that what you're doing? Or are you just pouring everything you've got into your job? Or are you just pouring everything you've got into your hobbies? Or are you just pouring everything you've got into fill in the blank? Job and hobbies are the two I see the most guys throwing away their time into. God calls us to be open-handed with our wealth, our time, our talent, our resources, to be spending it on the ones that we're responsible for. Obviously, first level of responsibility is your own family, but you've got the wider circles of the people you work with, your neighbors, your extended family, your community. Are you spending yourselves for others? Are you holding what you have with an open hand, saying, God, you gave this to me. It is to serve others for your glory. Are you doing that in your life? Are you just grabbing on to everything you have, saying, no, it's mine, stay away? How are you holding your resources? One of the things that blesses me is that our congregation is filled with men that I see teaching me how to do that. So many godly men who I see spending themselves for others, and I want to thank you for that. I want to challenge those of you that aren't doing it, though, and say you need to step up. Maybe grow up would be a better way to say it. A boy worries about himself. A man spends himself for others. True manliness is taking responsibility for other people, serving others in love. And one of the things I think we need to recognize, a friend and I were talking about this the other day. He said it this way. You'll never be able to be the man that you need to be for others until you've gotten your relationship to God settled, until you know who you are in Christ. We sometimes talk about that as identity. Do you know who you are? Do you know your identity? Do you know what God has done for you? 
another way to say it is this. You'll never be able to be a man until you know that you're God's child. Once you've settled that you're God's child and, and you're not trying to impress him anymore, you're not trying to win his affection, but you have it because of what Jesus did for you, because Jesus took away your sin on the cross and Jesus gives you his perfect righteousness through his resurrection life, once you've settled that, then you'll be able to grow up. That's the irony. And women, this, is apply, this applies to all genders, right? We grow up when we recognize that we're God's children. That's when we actually grow up and stop acting like a child. Stop trying to take, stop whining and demanding, but we're able to serve others in love because we know our Heavenly Father has cared for us. The next thing that we see happening is the choice of Lot here. Wealth can drive bad choices. Look again at verse 10. We see in verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, so I keep reading the wrong chapter, sorry. Chapter 13, verse 10. It's over on this side. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot lifts up his eyes and he makes a choice based on what he sees. A lot of commentators like to you know, emphasize the faith versus sight, right? That's a big theme for Paul. Um, Paul talks about, you know, we want to see with our hearts by faith and what God has done rather than just trusting on our eyes. doesn't mean that Christians are irrational and we don't care about our senses. It just means we know enough to know that our senses can trick us sometimes. That sometimes when we just rely on our senses, uh, we make decisions based on the wants of our belly, right? Our own personal hunger. But if we see with spiritual eyes what God is up to, we can make better choices. Well, here we see Lot making very temporary, very selfish choices, making temporary earthly wealth-based choices. And it says, he saw that this land looked awesome, and, and look at the description here, like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of the Lord, like Egypt. What did we just learn about Egypt a couple of weeks ago, right? Egypt is a symbol for the strength of man, for flesh, for us relying on ourselves. He's also making this connection with the Garden of the Lord, with Eden. So it's almost like a spiritual dimension to it here. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you see that new job possibility, or you see that new relationship possibility, that new girlfriend, that new boyfriend, or you see that new situation, whatever it may be, and you look at it and you think, yeah, that's going to be Eden. That's going to be paradise for me. That's going to be the way things are supposed to be. That's going to, when I get to that place, then I can just relax and everything's going to be awesome, right? And that's the kind of decision that Lot is making here. But we have this ominous warning at the end of it. It says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, saying some bad stuff is going to come, right? Like if you don't know the Bible very well and you don't know that that story is about to come in a few chapters, he inserts it here for you, right? He's helping us out. He's saying, oh, by the way, it's going to get burnt up here a little bit. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. And again, in case we don't get it, it says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So what do you think the author is trying to tell us about Lot's choice? 
He's kind of given us some hints, right? He said, Lot made a choice based on this thing looking like Eden. Oh, and by the way, it also looked like Egypt. And then he says, he moved to this area, and later on, God destroyed it, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says, he moved his tents in this direction all the way to Sodom. And then it tells us, just in case you're not getting me here, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah were incredibly wicked. They sinned against God. They sinned against the Lord. Do you see what he's doing? Sometimes stories are mysterious. We read stories, you're like, I don't get the main points. I'm not really sure what he's saying here. Is Abram doing the right thing? Is he doing the wrong thing? We know here, Lot's making a bad choice. Sometimes wealth can cause us to make bad choices. And again, we saw this a couple of weeks ago with Abram moving to Egypt. We talked about the difficulty of that, where I said, if, if you lose your job, I would hope that you would be responsible enough to go find another job, right? But I would hope that you would pray first. I would hope that you would call on the name of the Lord first. I would hope that you would seek the Lord. And here we have a picture of someone who's just pursuing wealth, and they're not calling on the name of the Lord. They're making a bad decision. They're saying, this looks good. This looks like paradise. This looks like Eden. I'm going to run there. And then later on, he's going to need to be rescued. Later on, God's going to come to Abram and say, by the way, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they are so evil and wicked. And they have to go in and pull Lot out of there. I have a picture here of one of my favorite illustrations. Uh, one way to illustrate this is with a Pringle can. Any of you, anybody like over six feet tall ever tried to put their hand into a Pringle can and you can't get it back out? Don't you feel like they're like purposely trying to kidnap you or, or trap you with this? There's a famous uh, monkey trap thing that, that you can build where if you could take a, a bowl or a pot or a metal box, and you can put something shiny or you can put some kind of food or fruit into the box, and you make the hole just big enough that the monkey can slip its hand into it, but then once the monkey opens its hand up a little bit to grasp something and make a fist, he can't get it back out. And I think this is a beautiful picture of what happens to us when we make fleshly choices, when we just choose with our eyes instead of choosing by faith and we say, that boyfriend is going to solve my problems. That girlfriend is going to solve my problems. That job is going to solve my problems. This momentary pleasure is going to solve my problems. We're grasping onto it and then we're stuck. We can't get our hand back out. And we're in this, what seems like a no-win situation where God's saying, well, let go. Let go of it. Just let go of it, and your hand will slip right back out. And you're like, no, but God, I can't. Because I'll die a thousand deaths if I let go of this thing. Because this thing is going to solve all my problems. And God's just saying to you right now, just let go. Just let go. It's not worth it. The story again and again throughout Scripture is that God is the one thing that we should grab onto and, and not let go of. All these other things that we substitute for God, those are, those are not true wealth. Those are not true solutions. Those are things that will enslave us. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Luther said, whenever you violate the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's going to lead to you violating all the other commandments. So if you're lying, you're lying because some other God is more important to you than the true God of the universe. You're committing adultery. You're doing that because some other God is more important to you than the God of the universe. If you're cheating, if you're stealing, if you're whatever it is, dishonoring your parents, 
disobeying the authority figures in your life. You're, you're doing that because something right in front of you is something you want to grab onto and not let go of because you see that as God, as Eden, as paradise. So I don't know what that is in your lives. I just know we all do it again and again. I know I do it. I know you do it. So God, through this text, I think by the Holy Spirit, is telling you, let go. Let go. See that I'm good. The, the question is, how, how can we make that kind of choice? How can we make that transition? Um, I think this story gives us the answer as we continue to move through the story and come to the ending of this little section. Uh, we're reminded that when it's hard for us to be generous like Abram, and when it's hard for us to not keep making those bad choices like Lot, grabbing on to what looks like Eden, even though it's full of wickedness. When it's hard for us to make those right choices, I want you to see the ending of the story here. In verse 14, we get the uh, conclusion, maybe you would say. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. So again, we've kind of got parallelism Lot lifted up his eyes and then just made decisions based on what seemed right to him. Now God is telling Abram, okay, Abram, you lift up your eyes and see what I'm going to give you. It says in verse 15, all the land you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, I'll give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Don't miss that Abram is really, really old, and Abram is childless, and God has the gall to make promises to him that he will have uncountable descendants. God is coming to Abram and pinpointing his area of, of greatest weakness and shame and pain and saying, I'm, I'm going to deliver for you here. You're going to have uncountable descendants. Now, in the New Testament, we're told, again, that the ultimate fulfillment of that is us. We are those descendants because we are sons of Abraham by faith because we trust in God's provision the way that Abram trusted in God's provision. And now we know the joy of salvation through Christ. Abram didn't know all the details of how this was going to work out. But Abram was beginning to trust that God would provide, even though he couldn't, couldn't see how he was going to do it. How are you going to do that, God? Because I don't, I don't have any kids. I'm past childbearing years. How's that going to work? We see Abram trusting in God's provision. We see even more than that, God's gracious choosing and giving of promises to Abram. And so Abram making the right choice and Lot making the wrong choice is not so much about how strong they were as individuals, but we're supposed to see in this text and the ending of the story that it's really about a gracious God who is blessing Abram, who is slowly changing Abram's life. A Abram didn't, in chapter 12, become a superhero that always made the right choice. Abram began a journey of following God. Abraham began this journey of trusting in God and trusting in God's promises and basing his life on a sovereign, gracious, promise-making, covenant-keeping God that moves into our life. And we have the same choice to make as well. 
So again, going back to our own application, if you're wondering why you haven't grown up, it's probably because you haven't come to that kind of relationship with God, where you see God as a gracious promise maker and keeper who loves you and who gave himself to you in Jesus. Once you settle that issue, you'll be able to grow up and serve others in love. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask, uh, ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute. Let me pray, and then we'll respond in communion together. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've come to us in Jesus. We thank you that as we think about Father's Day, some of us uh, missing out on having a father, some of us loving being a father, some of us wishing we were a father. God, so many different emotions. We, we pray that you would help us to see the one great truth that you are the ultimate father, that you are the father to the fatherless. And I pray that as we settle that account with you as individuals, as we reckon that we are your children by adoption through Christ, that as we reckon with that, that you would use us to be your presence in this community, to be fathers, mothers, to the orphans, to those in distress, to those that are all alone in this community, that you would use us to make an impact. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.